Hello and welcome to Complementary Training Podcast, Episode 8. This is Mladen Jovanović and in today's episode I'm talking to Samuele Marcora. Samuele is a professor at the University of Kent and he investigates the role of mind and brain in endurance performance, fatigue and physical activity. This is a pretty long episode but full of actionable insights. Some of the topics we cover are the following. Different models of performance and fatigue, the topic and the notion of brain as physiology and what does it mean, the difference between sense of effort and sense of exhaustion, the basis of psychobiological model uh, of performance and its distinction and similarities to no central governor model, uh, the idea that the models could be applied in different scenarios and different constraints and limiters in different scenarios, and especially the interesting topic is the mental fatigue, uh, the research behind mental fatigue and its application to sports, especially team sports. Uh, Samuel also covers tremendous amount of information regarding what is mental fatigue, um, the research behind it, how to train for it, how to minimize it, what strategies the coaches should use. Also, Samuel shares some of the ideas of how to estimate the mental fatigue using simple monitoring tools that some of, some of you are already using. It's just different way to look at things. Uh, also, the, the role, as I said, the role of mental fatigue in team sports. So definitely, this episode is worth your time if you're interested in the novel research of, on fatigue and its application in real-life settings. As always, before continuing with the podcast, I would like to thank our sponsor, Smartabase, for making this podcast possible. Enjoy the show. Smarterbase is a truly unique athlete data management solution for pro teams, colleges, Olympic sports, the military, performing arts, and research. Smarterbase encapsulates the ability to integrate all forms of data from many different sources of technology, such as GPS, Omega Wave, Elite Form, and many others. It has unparalleled reporting features, offering the user access to any data in the system within three clicks of the mouse. Most importantly, it is a customizable platform that you develop based on your needs and workflows for your data. With support teams based in the USA, UK and Australia, Smarterbase is in over 150 organizations in more than 10 countries. If interested, email info at fusionsport.com. Hello and welcome to Complementary Training Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Samuele Marcora. Hi, Samuele, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, so let's start with giving our listeners some information about who you are and what you're currently doing. I'm a professor of exercise physiology and also director of research at the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences at the University of Kent uh, in the UK. Pre- well, my, my career has been um, academically, I've been uh, obviously studying uh, sports science and, and physiology, although more recently I kind of focus a lot also on psychology, but also had um, experience. Uh, b- b- I always work between each degree. <laughs> so I've been in the army, I've been a fitness instructor, track and field coach. Um, and also I worked between my master and my PhD, I worked at the uh, School of Sport uh, at the Italian Olympic Committee. Uh, working with uh, you know Olympic athletes, testing and etc. And and also while whilst I was doing my PhD, I also worked as a consultant for Mapei, 
um, uh, sports service, which is uh, like a sports science, sports medicine center that uh, supports uh, the Mapei professional cycling team. Uh, when 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 it existed, it's not it doesn't longer exist. But uh, yeah, so this is my experience, academic and um, and also. Um, applied, if you like, so, most mostly academic, though. So we can say that you are a, a generalist, having experience in multiple fields, and I, I think that's a quite useful thing to have because you can you can see you can look at things from different viewpoints as a coach and as a as a I would say scientist. Yeah, yeah. Although obviously, as I said, my my I think it's it's it's, it's enough for me to give me a right perspective than my experience as a practitioner, but it's not very extensive. But actually, it's within my academic career, I also did very different things. Actually, what we're going to discuss today is always been going on for about ten years now. But before that, most of my work was actually clinical. So my my PhD was on muscle wasting in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, nothing to do with what I well. In a way, that's where it started because I was I was studying muscle wasting, you know, and you as a strength conditioning coach, you you know, people tend to to focus on this kind of, on muscles, right? But um, by doing that, you know, dealing with patients, I realized that uh, fatigue uh, as a sensation, as a perception, was very disabling uh, for these uh, patients. In a way, more than the muscle wasting that they suffer. So that's where kind of I. St- my conversion <laughs> started, uh, but again, that gave me a completely different perspective on on things. Working with uh, patients uh, with fatigue. Yeah, speaking of um, fatigue and uh, perception of fatigue, that's pretty much the reason I, I wanted to have you on the show uh, because you have slightly or uh, hugely different viewpoints. Um, so let's start talking about, say, different models of performance and you know slash fatigue. And now recently with recently, like maybe 10 years ago, with, with the papers from Noakes and, and the group from South Africa, we had this notion of brainless physiology and, and the end of brainless physiology because people were focusing on, I would say, components rather than the system. So what's your viewpoint on that? Well, I mean, Tim Noakes and colleagues, they definitely um, had the merit of, if like, really bringing the attention to to the brain and and um, uh, pacing regulation, et cetera, et cetera, within the field. However, I think for them to call the physiology that, that, that was, uh, and still is, most popular among us as physiologists, brainless, I think it's um, a misrepresentation of, of reality because actually the concept of central fatigue has been around for, I mean, gosh, I mean, the, the, the 60s, 70s. I mean, it's, and central fatigue, I will uh, give a lot of definitions, I think, during this interview, because I think one of my gripe with the people talking about fatigue is is that they never really fully define it. And unfortunately, the the same word, fatigue, is used to um, refer to a variety of different phenomena and and sometimes completely different phenomena. So it's very easy to get confused. So I I will provide definition every time I use this this word. (laughs) So when when we talk in physiology, when we are talking about central fatigue, we are talking about the exercise-induced reduction in the capacity of the central nervous system, so the brain, but also the, the, the motor neuron, the spinal cord, to recruit the muscles during maximal contraction. Um, so it's a very specific phenomenon with this very specific uh, mechanism and uh, relevance as well, 
which I think it is actually relevant to team sports uh, because uh, maximum sprints are kind of maximum voluntary contraction. So it is relevant to to, to team sports, but um, it's uh, it's completely different. For example, from the what people call the sensational fatigue, because I mean when they talk about sensational fatigue, you're talking about a feeling, uh, which is obviously also um, generated in the brain, but it's nothing to do with central fatigue. But a lot of people use the same term when referring to these two completely different phenomena. Yeah, makes makes sense. Uh, some of the coaches say, like Charlie Francis, um, brought into attention the uh, central nervous system fatigue, but he mostly referred to, I would say, not acute effects, uh, as you mentioned, during the activity or just right after activity, but most likely... Uh, a bit delayed effect of, of performing high-effort sprints and high-effort lifting mm-hmm. um, on, on the performance in the next couple of days. So, uh-huh. uh, as you say, um, we have this terminology issue and people are using same terms to refer to different things. And that, you know, doesn't help in, in sorting out the confusion. Yeah, I think it's important, as I'm doing now, uh, that people clearly define... I mean, I'm, uh, you know, some people... Even in clinical settings, they they tried or they propose, oh, we should find like a common definition for fatigue that we all share, we all agree. To be honest, I think that's going to be impossible. <laughs> there are so many and different people have different ideas and, and in and academics, if you tell them to do something, they don't do it. So um, it's, it's um, I, I, I don't think that's the way forward, but definitely we should clearly define what we talk about every time we use the term. Uh, both in science, but also, you know, people like you that are more on the interface with the practitioners. Um, and also when coaches talk about themselves, I mean, I think it's very, very important that they define fatigue properly because otherwise two people are talking, they're, they're talking about fatigue, but one is talking about something completely different from the other. That's, it's not going to help communication, is it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly mm-hmm. right. So speaking of uh, sensation of, of fatigue, uh, there seems to be two say, two types. So um, mm. some authors refer to a sense of effort. Yeah. Um, so how currently hard is the contraction or, or, or the activity? And yes. the sense of exertion or, or exhaustion. Yes. Well, this is a, quite a, a recent uh, distinction. Really what they mean is that perception of effort is the perception of effort. You know, as you said, you know, how hard um, it is to, to perform a task, a physical task. Um, but then they say, yeah, but no, but perceived exertion is about uh, all the different sensations that you experience when you do the task. And to be honest, I have a problem with that. First of all, because, again, it's confusing from a you know, purely uh, language point of view. You know? So if, if exertion and effort are in, in, the, in the English dictionary are synonyms. So, I mean, to, to use words that are in the English language, synonyms with each other, they, it, it, to refer to two completely different neurophysiological uh, uh, phenomena and psychological phenomena, uh, it is very confusing. So I think that's a, the wrong approach, even purely in terms of choice yes. of, so, of, of words. Sorry, Samuel, I'm, I'm going to give an example so uh, yeah. the, the listeners knows exactly what, what I'm referring to. As yeah. you said before, we need to clear up the terminology. So imagine, yeah. imagine you are cycling uphill. So yeah. giving a hard, hard uh, again, hard effort going, yes. going up the hill. And you feel uh, this sense of effort uh, of your, you know, uh, I would say discharging 
um, neurons to muscles. Yeah. And, you know, the, your sense of exertion is slowly uh, climbing up, so RP or whatever you want to call it. So you, yeah. you reach the top of the hill, uh, you're pretty much exhausted, and then you're going downhill. So, and then you're just, you know, going through a motion. So your sense of effort is pretty much uh, really low or, uh, you know, non-existent, while yeah. your sense of exertion, or in this case, sense of exhaustion, is still high. So th- those are two uh, yeah. things I'm referring to in this yeah, case. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But, um, for example, when you talk about sense of exhaustion, that's a, again, we need to define that as well, because I think it's, uh, when people talk about exhaustion or even fatigue, and they, in science, we call it metacognitive processes, like a fancy word. But it's not actually, I don't think it's actually a, a, a sensation per se. It's like a judgment that people make based on a variety of sensation, right? Um, there's no, I don't think there is, uh, unless somebody will uh, properly define it to me, w- w- what exactly is the sensation of exhaustion? I mean, I, I, I have no idea. What, what you can, and it's well defined in the literature and also measured with different uh, questionnaires or scales, etc. certainly the, the, the perception of effort that you would describe when you go uphill. Um, and for me, perceived exertion, perception of effort are synonyms. So when I talk about ratings of perceived exertion or perception of effort, sense of effort, I'm talking about the same thing because, and it's not just me. I mean, you just take the Oxford uh, Dictionary of English and you will see the effort and exertion are synonyms. So let's clear that up. But when people talk about, for example, exhaustion, tiredness, or even or fatigue in general, they also refer to things like, for example, if I feel... Uh, uh, people refer to tiredness or lack of energy. You, you, you can also call it exhaustion. I mean, you can feel it even at rest, but it's not actually even. A, it's not actually a sensation. But it's more like a mood state. It's a very generic feeling, no? Um, that is is not related to a specific stimulus. Like for example, going uphill is something that, as I said, you can um, experience at rest, um, and 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 it it has a, a completely different neurophysiology which we don't understand very much, uh, compared to perception of effort. But, for example, when you go uphill, especially cycling, also running, but especially cycling, you will also feel muscle pain. And, and that's a completely different, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's important, and uh, you clearly experience it during exercise, but that's a completely different sensation from effort, and it has a different neurophysiology. You will have a sensation of the, uh, the tension produced by the muscle, that, then again, that's another sensation. My, my, my problem with this idea of, of calling a sensation of exertion the combination of, of all these other sensations is that, first of all, they're very different. They have different intensity during exercise. So how I, I find very um, difficult for people to, to be able to actually give a rating that can encapsulate all of them. But also they have different neurophysiology. That's where I'm really not happy with, with pulling them all together because they have a different neurophysiology and, um, and therefore we should uh, um, rate them. You can rate them with different scales and study them separately. Uh, but most importantly, because you, you, we are talking to coaches, they're, they're not interested in this kind of possibly academic discussion, which is still very important in order to understand the, the phenomenon. But what they're interested in is performance. And my, and we can discuss about my model in a minute, I guess, but my proposal is that of all these sensations that we dis- just discussed, the most important, the one that really determines performance is perception of effort. Is the perception of how wild it is to, to, to perform uh, 
whatever physical task you are performing. The pain, the, the feeling of exhaustion, the feeling of tension, all these other feelings, that they may be important uh, for other reasons, other, but in terms of limiting performance in a normal situation, um, they're not so important. It's the perception of effort that is the key. It makes, makes, uh, makes some sense. Also, it's, it's a bit confusing, to be honest. Yeah. Because not not sure if it's a, a different phenomena, or so we are referring to the same phenomena, and then we have all this, I would say, different terminology referring to the same thing or, or different things at the same time. So uh, I, I need pretty much sure that we need to clear that mess yeah, up. Yeah, but I'll give soon, you a yeah. simple example then. I'll give you a simple example of three major sensations that people experience doing kind of in exercise, okay, or intense exercise. And you've been in Qatar, so you know also about the third one. So let's talk about three different sensations. Sensation of uh, of effort, perception of effort, okay, how hard it is to, let's say, go uphill, yeah? Uh, uh, the sensation of muscle pain, so the, the burning, you know, the aching of the muscle, again, when you go uphill. And then, let's say, you're doing it in, in Qatar, <laughs> uh, and it's very hot. So you feel kind of hot and sweaty and, and, and uncomfortably so. That's what we call thermal discomfort, okay? These are three major sensations that you can experience if you go uphill <laughs> uh, with your bike uh, when you're training in, in the same Qatar, okay? Yeah, and yeah. you all experience them at the same time when you do this task, okay? But they are three different completely from pu uh, purely as a sensation because they feel different, you know? The feeling of how hard it is is, not, is different from how painful your muscles are and, is, and it is different from how hot you feel. But also, so that's a, at a psychological level, the neurophysiology of these three sensations is completely different. So the mechanism that generate uh, um, these sensations are completely different. So that's why I think it's important to study them and, and, and measure them uh, separately. Um, but again, given the coaches cannot measure everything all the time because it's not practical, as I said, I think the most important one uh, from a explaining performance during a task is perception of effort, so they should concentrate on, on that one. Yeah, you're probably aware that in team sports, we measure this um, uh, RP. So RP as, yeah. a, as a session RP. How, oh, yeah. How, how I contributed to that. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes athletes are confused. What are they rating? So And also, yeah. is it the last segment that's most influential on, on the overall score? Yeah. Um, so, like... In your opinion, how valid is that type of um, subjective ratings? And yeah. so, as you said, say we perform the same session on, a, you know, on 20 degrees, you know, 0% of humidity, uh, compared to doing the same actual session on uh, 40 Celsius and, you know, 90% yeah. of humidity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's the thing. Um, First of all, I've actually been involved in one of the most cited papers. Well, I was the, 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 the last author of uh, one of the most cited papers kind of validating the use of session RP in, in football. Uh, first, first author was in Pellizzeri. Uh, Frank in Pellizzeri was what, basically my first PhD student and also one of my, well, my best friend. Um, so we've been kind of instrumental in, in, in validating uh, this uh, session RP scale that now has been used by a lot of people because it's practical and, um, as we're discussing, gives a very important information. But actually, even when people kind of uh, maybe don't even give a definition, everything, actually the good thing about 
the ratings of perceived session scales, including the, the session RPE scale, is that the, 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 when the subject see the scale, the, the words are things like hard, heavy. So it, it's, not how, it's not how painful or how hot it is. So people immediately kind of, they, they tend to give you a, a, a pretty good um, rating of effort because those are the, the wordings, we call them the, the verbal anchors on the scale, are about effort and not about pain and are not about feeling hot. But the important thing is that, for example, if you are exercising in the heat, eh, of you're going to feel hot, which is a separate sensation from perception of effort. But the same task is going to also be per, per, uh, perceived to be harder. So your perception of effort will be higher. But that doesn't mean, so exercising the heat eh, makes you feel the, uh, the, the task to be more difficult, harder to do. So increases basically increases your perception of effort. But that doesn't mean that the perception of, of feel, the, the feeling hot uh, uh, that doesn't mean the feeling hot is also a component of perceivalization, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, it's, 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 there are still two completely different uh, sensations. Indeed, you know, uh, I can make you feel more effort even if it's very cold. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, we need to distinguish between the effects of different factors on perception of effort and the psychological and neurophysiological um, uh, basis of this other sensation. Again, we are talking about two completely different issues. Yeah, let's let's give a one you know simple example, and yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about how would you comment on that. Uh, so imagine we do um, uh, uh, two sessions. So one session is really high quality session. Uh, yeah. Athletes are performing sprints, and the uh, the intensity is maximal. Uh, the duration is short, so you don't feel much. I would say. Uh, pain or, or acidity, whatever you want to call it, in the muscles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't get um, you know high breathing rates or whatever, but intensity is maximal, and yeah. there's a it, there's a long duration between uh, uh, efforts. Yeah. So it's like classical sprint training, and then yeah. uh, you might have a conditioning session where the intensity of running in this example could be submaximal, say seventy percent or sixty percent of yeah. your maximum. Uh, velocity, uh, but it's extended. So it's extended maybe to 30 seconds and then you have a short, short break. Yeah. Um, so you get really, you know, high heart rate rates, um, VO2 consumption is maximal. Um, and then you ask the players, um, you know, what's the session RP? And yeah. they, they might say, you know, again, <laughs> bringing back the, um, the distinction between those two, two sensations or more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they might say, you know, what am I rating? Am I rating how tired I felt or am I rating how much effort I gave? If mm -hmm. that makes sense. So it might create a confusion with the athletes. Yeah, no, no, it is. And, and I think you need to, you need to, in a way, I think my suggestion would be to actually not to think too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because if you, if they start to, um, think too much, then they may give you the, the wrong rating. I think if you are just asking which of the two sessions was the, um, the hardest, they will probably say the second one. Yeah, exactly. That would be, that would be my guess. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and, and actually, and again, and that would be the uh, correct rating. Although obviously session RP is a retrospective. It's not about how you feel now, 
So there is a problem with recall, although despite all this problem, I mean, as I said, it's, we, we validated it. It's still a valid, you know, if you do it properly, it's a valid measurement. Um, but also kind of, it's, 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 if you like, it's an integration of everything that you have done in the, in the session. It's not about, for example, if I, give, if I do a maximal sprint, one could say I gave a maximal effort. The problem is because it's very short and if you give them very long periods of time within a session, perception of effort recovers quite quickly. Um, uh, and I'll talk about perceptual effort, for, in this case, in the locomotor muscle, in the legs in a sprint. Because with the, when we're talking about perceptual effort, I'm talking about overall perceptual effort, which also in, includes the, the breathing, uh, the sensation of respiratory effort, I call it, um, how, how, how heavy, heavily you're breathing. So obviously, for example, if you do very short recovery periods, your, your ventilation will stay higher. And, and therefore, you would consider that when you give an overall rating, which is the session RP rating is an overall rating. It's not just about the effort that you exerted with your legs, let's say, in a sprinting session. It's overall how hard it was. But also, we need to consider that, um, yeah, the resting period. So if you, if you rest a lot, perception of effort will go down. And of course, you won't be exerting effort when you are resting. And also that um, either when you do continuous exercise or when... Uh, you don't give uh, enough recovery, there is an increase in perception of effort over time. And, and, and therefore, even the same task, or even a task at a lower intensity, uh, could be perceived as harder than, than, than the same, let's say, the same sprint that you did, um, you know, the, the first one that you did, even if you're doing the same thing, or maybe even if you're going slower. So it's, it's to me, the fact that they will give you a higher rating for this, uh, second kind of session is actually it, it fits with all I said before. If you start to yeah make them think too much, we start to give you some funny rating, which are not about how they felt during training. It's about how they start to think about it, which is this metacognition is a, is a fancy word, but that's exactly it. It's thinking about your thinking, <laughs> no? So it's I think actually um, we should keep it simple, and I think when you do that. Uh, the, the athletes will um, will give you a, a proper rating. You know, just the scale in itself is kind of almost self-explanatory. Mm. You know, uh, easy, hard, heavy. I mean, uh, you know, people understand that. Um, if you start to give too many meanings, they they get confused. So I would uh, I would avoid that. Um, and but the, the major mistake that I've seen people using this scale, and I'm talking about even professional. I won't name the team now, but even professional, you know, very high-level professional teams here in the Premier League, is that, um, for example, this guy told me, ah, oh, I give some, I guess, some fun, some strange ratings, and I ask, okay, how do you do it? And basically, he was giving the athletes on a piece of sheet with the, um, with the, with the, like a, like a, a table. Uh, where all the athletes' names were there with the ratings, it was just the same piece of um, sheet or paper was uh, circulated to all the athletes. So when one athlete was given a rating, he, he could see first of all the, the other athletes' rating, and also he knew that you know the, the next athlete would see his rating. If you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So um, that's another example of metacognition. You know, they they think about oh my god, oh it. He said it was easy. I felt it hard, but he said it was easy. And I don't want to look like a, you know, a pussy to the next one. So yeah. even if he felt hard, I, I'm going to say I, 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 it felt easy to me. You know what I mean? That, that's, and that's another example how if you think too much about things and if you 
uh, administer the instrument badly without considering all these other, also especially psychological factor, you can get a bad rating. But if you keep it simple, if you follow the instructions, um, uh, you know when to take it and uh, make sure that nobody else knows about the rating, etc. Apart from obviously the coach or the strength conditioning coach, whatever, um, and establish a good relationship that they understand this is not like a, an exam at school or something, something to help them, you know, having a, 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 a realistic and a sincere assessment how they felt during the training session is for you as a coach or as a strength conditioning coach, sports scientist, whatever, to help them. So you need to have a little bit of education. But when you do that, you get, and we prove that, I mean, empirically, uh, you get valid ratings of, of how well the training session um, was felt by the by the player. Yeah, we are uh, quite, I would say, rational people, and uh, sometimes we might be affected by other things in our ratings. So we need to, as you said, make sure that that stuff doesn't happen. I, I saw it in different clubs as well. Someone going around <laughs> asking, asking players how hard was the session, yeah. and you know they look at each other and you know uh, adjust. So um, it, it's also famous. Um, uh, I think phenomena in psychology called priming. You can prime someone to rate higher or lower. Absolutely. Uh, because yeah. we believe we, we are ru- rational and we are giving the best estimate, while yeah. we are really influenced by other uh, yeah. other things that we are not aware of. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, let's switch to your uh, uh, psychobiological model. Uh, yeah. So let, let's talk about it and, you know, what's the, uh, what's the basis behind it and, uh, like, I follow your um, uh, a Twitter account, and I like the exchanges that you have with uh, South African groups. Yeah. So, what's the distinction with, with between um, psychobiological model and Noakes slash Tucker uh, central governor model? Oh well, well, first of all, I think I will start actually with the the main commonality actually, uh, which is that the we both think that the performance, especially endurance performance. Uh, but I would include, um, to a certain extent, also kind of a, a repeated sprint um, ability. Although to a lesser extent, uh, we'll, we'll get to that uh, later, I guess. Is that endurance performance is regulated by the brain. And, and of course, that's uh, a big commonality. However, a lot of people interpret this... Um, uh, commonality as or the two models are exactly the same. No, where we we differ significantly, and I guess maybe for people that are not into kind of the the psychology, the neuroscience of this, may fail to grasp how different the two models are in terms of how the brain regulates endurance performance. So um, I would say that two major differences that uh, the central governor model puts. Be- believes that the, the recruitment of the muscle during kind of endurance exercise is, is regulated primarily at a subconscious level by this central governor that kind of limits the muscle recruitment uh, when um, exercise may become dangerous for you in terms of disrupting your homeostasis, for example, uh, causing uh, rigor mortis so that you get completely and complete energy depletion in your muscle that you cannot. Uh, contract them anymore uh, they stay rigid or that you cannot kill yourself by giving yourself an, a heart attack because you consume more oxygen than the heart can pump around so that was that was the and of course the idea is that things like very high motivation because it may push you to 
you know, for example, to continue exercise when you are, you are, uh, your hemostasis is, is, is very disturbed or, um, uh, for example, exercise in the heat, et cetera, et cetera. They see motivation be as a danger, so that's you need you need uh, this subconscious center governor to make sure that you don't uh, do stupid things with your conscious brain, if you like. Um, the problem I have with the model is that, well, first of all, that there is a lot of evidence that people do stupid things with the conscious brain. Um, uh, first of, you know, for example, people that you know, um, despite being extremely hot, <laughs> and uh, most people at that stage will stop and get some water on the head and find some shade and certainly stop running. Uh, you see these triathletes on YouTube, you know, uh, getting, well, some people died even, um, uh, of, of heat stress because of they, they kept running when really they should have stopped. And, that, and, and that's because of very high motivation that they had to continue and to do a very stupid thing. But to me, it's a bit extreme example, but my, my, my extreme example is that the, the reason why I think that the let's call it the conscious brain is more powerful is that uh, you can kill yourself, which is definitely not very good for your homeostasis. Um, and uh, you can do it uh, consciously. It's definitely a conscious act. Uh, that doesn't mean that subconscious uh, stimuli and subconscious um, or even totally unconscious uh, factors in the environment, uh, they, still, they, they do affect you big time. And of course, most of the things we do, think about, you know, driving a car i mean you're nothing you're not conscious not thinking about each muscle that you recruit when you you know you change gear or or whatever same thing with 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 with, with exercise with movement i mean when you kick a ball or you do a sprint i mean you're not thinking about uh you know the muscle recruiter of each muscle so that my my, my when i talk about when, when my mother puts emphasis on conscious processes um it's about primarily about decision making so you you uh, what I'm saying is that the main uh, determinants of endurance performance are conscious decisions that you take based on conscious information, and the main one for endurance performance is is perception of effort. Um, and the other uh, emphasis is on the very important role of motivational factors. In um, you can to a certain extent, modify performance by modifying motivation as well. It's not, uh, it, there's no subconscious governor that whatever, regardless of how motivated you are, is going to stop you. Uh, there is there is a little, there is a gain in performance that you can get by, by motivation. And even more so, I think, motivation becomes even more important during training. Um, because, you know, in an important, in an important competition, most athletes will be highly motivated to give a truly maximal effort or what they perceive as a truly maximal effort is, is during training where motivation can, and I'm sure you as a practitioner, you, you see this all the time where motivation, because I don't know, especially, you know, I don't know the, 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 the competition is uh, far away, et cetera, et cetera. Some, some athletes struggle to maintain a high, very high levels of motivation day in, day out. Um, so that's where you, you can also gain, I think, uh, by, they can be more attention to the motivational factors that determine um, endurance. So, can in, in my in my mind as a, as a practitioner, I'm um, I'm thinking can can both models be right? So, uh, let me just expand quickly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, they might be might be right or usable in, in different uh, different contexts. So, um, we might have different constraints limiting the the performance and uh, imposing fatigue. 
Um, so for example, um, say 100 meter sprint compared to a, a 30 second wing gate test, um, yeah. Time, yeah. Tr time trial in the heat or, um, you know, time to exhaustion, at, you know, cycling at 80% of uh, power uh, of VO2 max power. Yeah. So, uh, we might have different mechanisms limiting the performance. For example, volitional slash motivational, uh, yeah. as you mentioned, we might have some conscience in this case, um, sensor governor or, or whoever is there <laughs> limit, yeah. limiting the output of, of the uh, motor system or even peripheral factors uh, um, at the end, just, you know, decreasing the, the power or force output. So depending on, uh, on the actually activity, and we are already familiar with the fact that fatigue is uh, task dependent. Mm -hmm. So can those two models be more correct in different scenarios? Um, when I was talking about the central governor and my psychobiological model, I was talking about endurance performance. So um, anything that lasts, well, some people say, I, I put it, um, to, to my limit at the moment is on 30 seconds. So anything above 30 seconds, some people say maybe more 75 seconds. But, you know, um, not, not a, a, a maximum short sprint or, you know, weightlifting or whatever. Um, in, you're right. In, for example, let's say, if you ask me why in the last sprint of a football match, and it's very, very important, so it's not that you are kind of managing yourself. You, you really go all out. Okay, because it's very important. And you also did, there was an important phase of the game, and you did the maximum sprint at the beginning of the first half. Okay, so in both conditions, you gave a truly maximal effort, lasting, I don't know what's the most recent match analysis. We're talking about, you know, less than 10 seconds, right? What is the, the latest match analysis data? I mean, a lot of sprints in, uh, in 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 teams in football, for example, you know, are not are not long ones. They are they are they are relative, definitely below thirty seconds. In these conditions, what limits the, the fact, for example, that at the end of the second half, despite your truly maximal effort, you're gonna go slower than when you did the truly maximal sprint in the beginning of the first half. That has nothing to do with my psychobiological model. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I don't think it has anything to do with the central governmental model either. Um, it is traditional and still absolutely valid in that contest uh, as a size physiology. So the reason why you will go slower at the end of the second half compared to the beginning of the first half is because primarily of what we call peripheral fatigue. So uh, uh, mechanism of, of fatigue within the muscle, but also because of central fatigue, which we discussed earlier on. So uh, uh, exercise, just, just exerting effort for many times, you're know, doing many, you know, like, like you do when you do a, a football game, will cause changes within your brain. But actually, it seems that the main factors are within the motor neurons, so within the spinal cord. The, 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 and, and, and there's nothing intelligent about it. It's not a subconscious system that do calculations and intelligently decide that you, you cannot uh, run as fast as you could uh, in the second half. No, no, no. This is nothing intelligent, nothing conscious. 
is all subconscious and it's not intelligent. Are purely physiological changes in the, for example, excitability of your, of your motor neurons so that despite a truly maximal effort, you're not able to fully recruit your muscles. So when we're talking about that kind of fatigue, which is very relevant to um, team sports, yeah. then we go back to standard, nicely studied. There is a lot of studies there uh, in terms of mechanisms, uh, exercise physiology. There's nothing fancy. But we are, again, that's why definitions are important. Although a lot of people call it, they would call, the, call it fatigue. You know, uh, the fatigue um, they are talking about is what we call muscle fatigue. So a reduction, that doesn't mean, when we talk about muscle, we're talking about a combination of central and peripheral. Eh? Uh, is a, is a reduction in the maximal amount of, of force or power that you can produce with a voluntary muscle contraction, a, a maximal a voluntary muscle contraction. Um, and, and for that, as I said, there are plenty of studies um, in terms of mechanism and therefore plenty of suggestions that you can give to coaches on how to um, kind of try to reduce that. My model and also the model of um, Nox and, and colleagues in terms of team sports is more about, uh, the, the, although it's much less study, it's more about the pacing in, in this case, for example, the players doing competition, you know, as you know, I mean, uh, team sport players, they don't go all out every sprint they do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, exactly. They manage their, 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 their physical activity on the pitch. And uh, a, a, lot of the, a lot of the activity will be submaximal. And that's where I think um, uh, factors like perception of effort and knowledge of, for example, uh, how much uh, time is left in the game, and uh, set a lot, a lot of conscious factors determine um, the, the the decisions that the the, the, the players um, take during int- the, the players take related to this this the, the pacing uh, during competition. The problem is that even in endurance competition, in time trials, forget about endurance competition where you compete against other people. Even w- within time trials, we are still really understanding the, the, all the factors that determine pacing. I mean, for us to get to a scientific understanding, a very deep understanding of pacing decision, in a, for example, in a football match, where you also have to consider a lot of the decision. You're not even taking decision. You are reacting to the decision of somebody else, um, your opponent. That's going to be, it's going to take a long time. I think it's very exciting. It's not something I'm particularly interested in, but... Uh, when we get to the point that we understand that, uh, I think there will be a lot of uh, interesting um, uh, applications for uh, for coaches. But in terms of studying scientifically, we are way uh, behind the the the, the uh, that stage. I mean, we are, we are still trying to understand pacing during time trials uh, before we get to pacing in football. It's going to take a yeah, take a while. Interesting, mm. interesting to see. For example, in a you know last couple of minutes of a game, you know, a player start to uh, I would say slack or reduce the reduce the overall uh, intensity, um, maybe because of pacing, and then someone scores, and you you see them all doing you know twenty thirty second sprints to celebrate. <laughs> So <laughs> there's definitely some pacing uh, involved. And w- one of the hot topics currently in, in team sports and uh, performance analysis is that uh, is those, I would say, decrease in, in performance, a number of uh, um, high-velocity distance covered in the last minutes, a uh, number of um, 
um, high efforts, is that related to actually pacing yourself or, or ta- actual tactical situation on the pitch? Or it's actually, uh, it's, or, is it, or is it actual fatigue that's... that's uh, mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's, the, the answer is all of them. Yeah. <laughs> that's why, that's why <laughs> it's all complex. So you will have your own tactical, you know, uh, strategic um, kind of uh, uh, decision that you take even before, you know, sometime before you go into the pitch, you know, kind of set up. There is the behavior of your opponents that will determine how you behave. Uh, there will be the, the kind of pacing that I'm interested in, which is based, uh, pacing about, you know, for example, how long you run, how intensely you run. Um, based on perception of effort, motivation, etc. And also there will be, when you see, when what we discussed earlier, you know, when you see a decline in the maximum short sprints, um, that will be uh, central and peripheral fatigue. So w- what you actually analyze with the, you know, with the video analysis or accelerometry, whatever you use, it will be uh, within the overall match. It will be a combination of all those factors. And I think as we do in, in, uh, in, in science, in order to fully understand, uh, we need to understand them kind of in a way each separately, try yeah, to separate, yeah. clump, control, clump and then and then once we understand the the mechanism of each uh, separately, then we have to look into put them back together and see how they interact with each other. I mean, it's a very exciting. Um, you know, if somebody is interested in this, as to do to do to do some science. Um, and after that, I think there will be a lot of excitement also among practitioners. Understanding this pacing during a, 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 a football match or basketball match, whatever, it's, I think it's very, very exciting, but extremely, extremely complex. I mean, we are talking about basically social behavior because I see all these things, I see them as a behaviors, right? Um, so it's, it's very complex, and, um, but very exciting. Um, it's not probably where I'm going to go myself, but I'm sure there will be a lot of people that will bring it forward. But we are a long way, I mean, years and years again, away from um, even under, of the three, put it this way, of the three components that we discussed, you know, tact, uh, four, let's say, tactical, technical decision f- from yourself, uh, your opponent behavior, the kind of more basic kind of uh, fatigue that we are talking about, kind of perception of effort, motivation, and, and muscle fatigue, which is the fourth component. That one we know a lot. Um, so we can definitely, and people, and obviously strength conditioning coaches, nutritionists, you are already working on that. We, we know a little, quite now we're starting to understand quite a lot about perception for motivation, what kind of information people use to pace themselves, do we kind of endurance exercise? We know we're starting, I, I start to see, um, studies on, uh, what happens when, uh, the opponent behave in different ways. But again, in the context of very simple context of a time trial or endurance competition, um, and in terms of strategy, et cetera, et cetera, I, I don't know of any research. So we, it's, it's, it's starting. It's, it's, but, you know, science takes a long time before. Um, um, yeah. And I'm sure that at an experiential level, there is already quite a lot of knowledge um, among practitioners and coaches and artists themselves. The problem is that when you're dealing with very complex things, your own experience can sometimes mislead you and don't, it doesn't give you a full, an, a f- a f- full appreciation of, of all the different factors and how you could modify them. 
uh, that's where science becomes useful because uh, it kind of isolate things and and then put them back together and with a better understanding of how they work. Um, yeah, yeah, completely agree. Uh, it's uh, I'm pretty happy that recently we started moving at least in team sports and um, I would say performance in a team sport. Uh, we started moving slightly away from physiology-dominated analysis. Uh, in this mm. case, you mentioned four, or f- maybe even more factors. Yeah. Uh, so what, what we are looking now uh, is, say, mental fatigue and see how fatigue mm. or different types of fatigue, if probably they are, uh, how are they influencing the decision-making in a, in, a, in a game? Not only running, but how, um, um, how does fatigue or mental fatigue influence the perception, um, seeing a tactical affordances, uh, and, and, and decision-making in a game. Uh, yeah. And you recently mentioned that, that uh, you, you started researching this phenomenon of the mental fatigue and, and the effect mm-hmm. of mental fatigue on performance. So can you expand on that? Yeah, I think actually this is another big part of my research, which is related to the psychobiological model, but is a, a kind of spans... Uh, broader than that in a way um, including technical tactical performance for example in team sport players football players especially I have done in 2009 um, the first properly done experiment proving that mental fatigue can affect physical performance obviously there are a lot of studies you know kind of air pilots or drivers or things like that um, looking at the effects of mental fatigue on, on cognitive performance um, but when I went in, um, when I did my study, the, the only previous study in, on the subject was actually from another Italian who tested two professors of physiology in 1891. And he, he did a, like a, a muscle fatigue test kind of thing, like a, a physical performance test with the hand muscles before and after like a lecture. And he noticed in only two people, and not even with an experimental design, um, he, he noticed that the physical performance in this, in this kind of uh, fatiguing, uh, hand, hand grip kind of task um, was reduced after these two professors gave lectures all morning. So, and he mentioned this in his book called La Fatica. Uh, and he called it mental fatigue, and uh, but that's it. That's you know that's w- w- how much it w- there was in the literature. Although obviously coaches, I mean it, it, it's interesting. If you go in the scientific literature be, before I did my 2009 paper, I published my 2009 paper. There was nothing based apart from this couple of uh, anecdotal evidence in uh, in uh, in a book uh, published 120 years ago. Um, but if you go on Google and you put mental fatigue. And then you you find a lot of quotation from coaches and athletes, you know you get a lot of so the 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 people on the field they 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 know <laughs> they knew for a long time that um, fatigue is not just about the muscles. The problem is that all the science that we had and we still have most of it is about the muscles. It's not about the 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 this mental fatigue. And by the way, again, we need to define what mental fatigue is. Mental fatigue is the that I. The, 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 the sensation of tiredness, etc., but also the reduction in performance, which can be cognitive, but also physical, induced by prolonged mental exertion or mental effort, the same thing. So, and of, of course, in the, in the lab, what we do, we ask people to do mentally demanding 
cognitive task on a computer because we so because that's the experimental way of doing it because we when the, the only fatigue then I know it's mental but I don't know because of the measurements I do because for example if I ask you whether you are tired or not you, you know if you feel tired whether you feel tired because you have done, you know, a, a lot of physical work or mental work, you're going to feel tired pretty much. Oh, there will be differences, you know, the muscle may lake uh, if you have run uh, compared to, play, uh, you know, working on a computer all day. But in terms of general tiredness, I mean, there's not actually much a difference between the two. So you need to know exactly what they did in order to define, if you like, the, the, the nature of the fatigue. And that's what we do in, in the experiments. But when you, you do... Any kind of exercise, uh, even endurance performance, but obviously even more so team sport performance, where not only you have to exert physically, but also you have to keep attention on your opponent, uh, uh, I don't know, remembering what the coach told you you need to do, um, um, uh, inhibit, you know, the, you want to kind of tell the referee to bugger off or do or, or hit your opponent, but you control yourself because otherwise you, you can be. Um, get a penalty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All these, all these things I just described are, are, are uh, uh, require mental exertion. So, the, playing football, for example, is mentally fatiguing. If you know what I mean, a lot of people just see the muscle fatigue because they think oh, it's a physical thing. They are running around. No, no, no. It's there is a, 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 a lot of mental exertion in a football match, and that's going to cause mental fatigue. And this mental fatigue is a, what I call it, is a double whammy. It's even worse than muscle fatigue because muscle fatigue will affect uh, primarily your physical performance, okay? Mental fatigue will affect your physical performance, as I demonstrated, uh, starting in, in that paper in 2009, but will also affect your uh, cognitive, but also now we, we, we have shown also uh, technical performance, which is a more specific, more elaborate kind of performance specific to um, team sports. Uh, for example, we did, we did the passing, Loughborough passing test and also the Loughborough shooting test uh, in a group of uh, football players uh, where we pre-fatigued them mentally or in a rest, rested kind of situation. And both the uh, passing test and the shooting test were significantly affected by mental fatigue. So is um, they also it, uh, also did the physical performance test, the yo-yo test that you guys use a lot to measure kind of overall kind of physical fitness in uh, in your players. The, um, and we found a significant reduction. I mean, 200 meters that you know is quite a lot in uh, in also in the yo-yo test. So mental exertion, which you're going to have a lot of it, not just you know. Uh, you can control maybe what people do before the match. You should definitely avoid engaging people in, in mentally fatiguing tasks before a game. But you cannot avoid the, the mental fatigue that will be induced by playing the, uh, playing the game itself. And, and, and that mental fatigue is, is probably one of the factors that determine the reduction in performance, for example, in the second half. Yeah, um, I agree. And so it's very important to understand it better and, of course, try to find ways to minimize that, right? Yeah, in uh, in the I would say new, but I would say a Spanish model, uh, uh, something that's referred as a tactical periodization. In this case, yeah. uh, the coaches are actually identifying those um, I would say non-physical um, constraints. And in this case, could be a tactical fatigue or technical fatigue. And what what they do what they do following a game, also they um, 
the activities that are performing in the next couple of days are also simpler from a decision-making standpoint. Not, mm. only, not only physically, because, because they also know that athletes are not ready to learn new, I would say new things or focus mm. more on mm. tactics. So mm. they know their, their, their head is not there. So yeah. they call it their head is not there. So it's, yeah. I would say, artisan terminology. Yeah, uh, a practitioner terminology, uh, but but they recognize the phenomena, so they cannot teach them anything. Yeah, new. They need to wait for for you know mental fatigue to uh, dissipate. Yeah, besides only physical one. Yeah, so it's it's already as you said, it's already being used in the field, and yeah. and it seems that sports science is a bit lagging in, in some of the way to actually describe that some of the things that a practitioner is already doing. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's very much, you know, the key. I mean, obviously, I mean, we, we, what the practitioner sees is the phenomenon. We scientists, and therefore they are aware of it, um, we scientists study phenomena. The problem is that because fatigue has been mainly studied by physiologists, they've been studying physiological things. <laughs> so that's why they, it's, it's, it's a, a cultural issue, if you like. Yeah, it's also they, easier to measure. So it will- absolutely, it's easier to measure. It's more. It's it's it, you rely basically almost completely. Although even you know the measurements of uh, central fatigue require a maximal effort. They all assume that people produce a maximum voluntary effort, and they say, okay, so if you if you see a reduction in recruitment, it must be due to some physiological changes, which is true. But even some assumption, even that people use in pure physiology. Mm, they can be influenced psychologically, so they, they, they should know a little bit more about psychology, I think. But in general, it's, you, can, you, measure, you measure objective things, and that's what physiology is like, objective measures, right? Um, so you can measure how much lactate you produce or how much force you produce or all these kind of things. I mean, now, I mean, with muscle fatigue, I mean, people now are, are doing studies not even on the, on, the, on the muscle, not even in the single muscle fiber. I mean, they are studying fatigue at the myofilament level, you know, at molecular level. I mean, we are, we are that advanced in understanding muscle fatigue, yeah? Um, you know, there are thousands of papers about it. We, we know a lot. But that's because scientists, they like to do that. You know, there is a phenomenon, and they want to understand why it happens. And in a way, that's fine. That's our job. You know, we, we cannot be all practitioners. We cannot be all scientists. You know, otherwise, we probably do both jobs very badly. I mean, we need to specialize. We need to do our own thing. But you're right. I mean, there has been lack of interest uh, among the sports science community about this mental fatigue. And in a way, that's I, I reversed the trend. Um, or oh, I started a new field of research, which now is not just me. There are other people uh, um, taking this challenge on and try to understand better both the effects of mental fatigue and quantify them. Although the coaches know about it. I'm pretty sure they didn't know as, you know, one good thing about sports science, even if the coaches already know more or less that there is this phenomenon, is the good thing about sports science uh, or science in general is that you can actually quantify, <laughs> you know, how much it is and therefore compare it with other things. And and that's not the kind of information that, uh, for example, what we know um, uh, from 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 studies we've done uh, with with the not in football players in in number of people is that actually the effects of mental fatigue on physical performance specifically kind of endurance kind of performance but obviously endurance is very important for team sports as well it's as big as the effects of muscle fatigue so I did two studies one where I asked 
people to do a physical endurance test after I made them do 100 drop jumps from a 40 centimeter high platform. So I really fatigue their muscle at the kind of muscular and excitation contraction, like yeah. we call it, level. You know, yeah. really pu- muscular mm, uh, fatigue. You kill them, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and one un- the effects of doing that on the endurance test is the same, basically the same of doing 90 minutes of a mentally demanding task on a computer before you do the endurance test. Which is so, amazing, yeah. Yeah, so the effects of mental fatigue on endurance are as large, there is, there is limited amount of research, but from the study that we have seen so far, the effects are as large as the, the effects of muscle fatigue. So we should definitely pay put, attention to it, yeah. Yes, and that's on endurance. And as I said, on the top of that, mental fatigue effects are technical and possibly you know, there is another study uh, also from Mitch that um, he did in Belgium in terms of decision-making. We also know, although I wasn't involved with that study, but we also know that mental fatigue affects decision-making football players. So it's, it's, it's as I say, it's a double, triple, quadruple whammy. <laughs> like It yeah. really affects all the important components of football performance, football or any team sport performance. So if, any, if, if, I, had, if I was a coach or a strength conditioning coach, if I had to pick... One kind of fatigue that uh, I really have to work on, it would be mental fatigue, not uh, muscle fatigue. Although, of course, it's important to do everything. But let's say I had to choose, you know, I didn't have any choice. I have to choose one. I would work on mental fatigue because that's uh, uh, reducing that. It probably has the biggest um, composite effect of, of all of the other kinds of fatigue. Yeah, speaking speaking of that, um, I'm going to give one example and ask you for a recommendation. So, yeah. Um, so altitude camps or camps in general, uh, yeah. they might be actually uh, beneficial because of the mental fatigue. Because athletes are not in the cities, there, there's no traffic, there's no issue with meal preparation, there's no commute, so they can relax and train. So yeah. you know, we, we we might minimize the mental fatigue in that regard. Yeah. Uh, so again, it could be altitude, but it could also be uh, reducing the mental stress, I would say, or life mm. stress on, on the athletes because you're yeah. in a forest and, you know, nature and, and whatever. So mm. my, my also question to you uh, is that what, what can practitioners do to minimize the mental fatigue for, you know, preparing for a game or actually in a, in a week? Yeah. Um, <laughs> good question. I wish I could really give you a proper answer. I can only give you some speculative, you know, as I said, we just started to study this and understanding this. So from there to give people practical recommendations, which are based on proper scientific evidence, is there's a lot of work to do. I can give you some, 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 uh, you know, the, the, my educated guess, put it this way. Okay. What I would do, definitely, um, in a way you just already mentioned, although um, I'm, I'm not sure that that's, you know, especially if you're talking about also training at altitude, um, that may that should be a form of brain endurance training. We can call, talk about that later, um, and also maybe changing environment sometimes. Yes, you are right. In, in a way, it could be less mentally stressful, but in, in, in other ways, can be more mentally stressful because you change environment. You have you are forced to live with other people all day long, and so I don't know. It's a complex situation. But interesting what you said. I'm not saying 
uh, that your your um, 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 explanation is right. Explanation or wrong, is yeah. is right or wrong. It's, it's probably part of it, but I think it's more complex than that. I think it'd be interesting to study, as you say, altitude comes from. Uh, obviously, they are done mainly. The, the, the rationale has been physiological, but as you said, there are a lot of things going on that are not physiological in altitude camps and be interested to, to understand it a bit better. But going back to, okay, Sam, let me, tell me, uh, okay, what can I do about this mental fatigue? Um, in terms of, let's say, in terms of uh, uh, preparing for, a, or preparing a, during a, a match or a competition, uh, I'll give you some uh, tips about that. Then you already mentioned, and again, that becomes more, more complex, so we can also talk about how to manage it during the training process. Yeah? Okay, so in terms of a competition, so what you can do kind of uh, close to or the day before, whatever, uh, um, um, uh, a competition or during the competition. Obviously, I mean, uh, that's almost as obvious, but it's very obvious, and then people don't... <laughs> Don't, don't do it, it or don't realize it, is that you, you should minimize um, mental workload, basically, before a competition. And I'm not talking about, you know, our guys don't, you know, don't, don't do mathematics or things like that, because nobody does that. Who does? Or they kind of also the kind of cognitive tasks that I use, no? Uh, nobody does. It's an experimental uh, instrument that, you know, I use to induce mental fatigue, but that's not what people do. You don't do a stroop task for like half an hour before you do a, a, a football match. But importantly, the task, for example, that I use in my experiments, although they are computerized, they, they are about you know letters, colors, and arrows, and things of like that that have nothing to do with the real world. From a brain point of view, and that's the key, they, let's say, fatigue, a, a certain areas of the brain, they are associated with the cognitive process, which people call response inhibition, inhibitory control, that uh, requires a lot of effort, and therefore uh, mental effort, and therefore is very fatiguing from a mental point of view. And so, for example, and, and anytime you try to control your behavior, you're using that. So, for example, if you are tired and you or, or whatever for whatever reason your money somewhere else you don't want to do a training session but you force yourself to do it even if you don't want to because you know it's important it's uh, you, you know because uh, otherwise if you skip you won't you, you won't be performing well whatever when you do that you activate you, you use that cognitive process which I call inhibitory control and you activate the same areas of the brain they are activated in the tasks that are used in the lab to mentally fatigue people. If you are angry with uh, a teammate or an opponent or whatever, the referee, and you want to smash their face, but you control yourself because, well, it's important uh, to behave properly and socially. And it's not nice. <laughs> that is the same thing. A brain level, at a purely new, uh, uh, from a neuro, um, cognitive neuroscience level, it's the same thing. It's you control, you assert conscious, effortful control over your behavior. And that's extremely fatiguing. So uh, that already probably give you, so you need to basically minimize uh, all, all, all these kind of things. Um, and and, and uh, it can, actually sometimes you may not be able to fully kind of reduce this kind of cognitive work, but you, try, you need to try to minimize that.
The other thing, which is kind of related to it, and it's kind of related to mental fatigue, although there are some specificities, is uh, sleep hygiene, which I know also is now being kind of talked a lot among coaches, etc., etc. It's kind of related to it because there are, there are commonalities between mental fatigue and the fatigue induced by uh, sleep uh, loss or sleep restriction. So obviously, all the sleep hygiene stuff that you know, I'm not an expert, but you, you can talk to Fiona Olson, for example, uh, um, experts in kind of in the sleep for athletes, and sometimes it's very difficult go to sleep because you're thinking you're anxious whatever so but try to maximize sleep for example the day before a competition etc etc is very important then uh, during the competition again it's very difficult although it'd be interesting to think about whether you could minimize cognitive workload during the competition but sometimes obviously you, you require for example, inhibitory control, uh, continuous attention, all this kind of thing. So you, you might not be able to reduce the cognitive work because you need that. You need those processes to perform well. But what you could do, for example, is to, well, I would definitely do, for example, try not to overload people in the halftime break <laughs> uh, with information. With uh, And again, you need to strike a balance as a coach with, between the need for you to direct the, the, the team and maybe give information, have the players think about, Certain information and uh, possibly the, the kind of the the the, the mental stress but, and also even the cognitive work that you may have, that you may be giving to the to the players during the recovery period where it would be ideal to uh, recover mentally as well as as physically. But uh, again, you need to strike a balance as a coach on what exactly you do there. Um, but being aware that if you require people to uh, assert mentally, you are not letting them recover the mental fatigue accumulated during, the, let's say, the first half of the game. You may still decide to do it, but at least you are aware that um, uh, that's what's going on. The more physiological um, uh, uh, manipulation, which I already know uh, is used, but I think we don't know, there's not much research and I think can be optimized and certainly in individualized, because I think I should also the dosages that most people use, uh, I think too low, I think, is the use of caffeine um, in team sports, uh, especially in the half time, but also maybe during the second half, for example. Uh, so use it strategically when people are becoming fatigued in the right dose, in an individualized dose that makes you less fatigued without side effects, et cetera, et cetera. So I think also that can be done, but can also be optimized. Yeah. And finally, uh, there can be some um, psychological techniques, for example, that we use with endurance athletes like self-talk that can also be taught to the players and they, they could use that to, let's say, you know, between that, you know, overcome their fatigue and perform um, uh, physically as well as, as, as cognitively better by, for example, using a systematic way certain psychological techniques. So these are my educated guesses and there is a lot of work to do but I think there is already a lot to do that a lot of things that the coach and the strength conditioning coach and the psychologist whoever is supporting the team can already think about and, and do in the competition and then of course there is all the, the issue about the training which maybe we can yeah. but I want to know what you think about what I just said because I, I talk too much I think it's <laughs> it's quite quite interesting to be honest um, but I guess the, the key question is that can you improve that as a capacity so in terms of uh, getting used to that mental load, and mm. I know some of the uh, pro progressive coaches, especially in endurance uh, sports, they're already implementing some type of 
say, uh, I would say, mathematics, again, some, some type of a mental task yeah. uh, or mathematics uh, in yeah. between running sets just to yeah. Yeah. impose yeah. that mental load on, on the athlete. Yeah. So you want to prepare them yeah. for, for yeah. things like that or, or increase the capacity rather than yeah. try to minimize it. Yeah. You yeah. also yeah. want to make yeah. them more resilient on, yeah. on, on that effect. Yeah, absolutely. And it, that, that comes from a study um, that, that I've been doing... Um, a study I did with uh, funded by the Minister of Defence here in the UK, um, and what we basically we, we did the, that in the lab. So we overloaded the, the if you like the brain <laughs> um, doing exercise. So there were basically I just described the study because it's actually a simple study in design. So it's not, and it gives you. So there were two groups of people. Uh, what, uh, uh, the, what we call the brain endurance training. That's a, the how I call it, uh, group and the control group. Both groups, they were doing endurance training, you know, an hour, kind of 65, 70% heart rate max uh, kind of training three times a week on a bike, you know, and they were doing exactly the same thing in terms of physical training, if you like, for 12 weeks. But the uh, control group, they just did that, you know, standard, you know, um, endurance training. The other group, at the same time that they were cycling, they were on a stationary cycle ergometer, they were also performing this one of these uh, cognitive tasks that I described earlier that make you mentally fatigued. Um, so they, they did a mentally fatiguing task one hour, three times a week, at the same time that they were doing the uh, physical endurance training. And they did that for 12 weeks. In terms of fitness, which we measure as usual as a VO2 max, there were no differences. Obviously, both groups improved. They were not. They were kind of normal, kind of fit people, not uh, athletes. Uh, but they bo- the both groups improved to the same extent. But when we do, when we did the endurance test, which is different, it's not a fitness test. Is for how long you can last? Is a time to exhaustion test. For how long you can last at a certain percentage of your um, Due to max of your, if you like, of your physical capacity, the both groups again improved, uh, but the group that did the brain endurance training improved uh, almost d- double amount. So it was a really striking effect on the on physical endurance. We also did measurements of um, resistance to kind of more c- c- cognitive tests. Because actually, the the main interest of the Minister of Defense was to see whether we could make uh, soldiers more resistant to the the cognitive um, decline induced by mental fatigue, not so much the physical effects. Uh, but I cannot discuss those. Yeah. Uh, I, I've I've only been given permission to discuss the physical um, physical effects. Yeah. I can already see uh, soccer coaches giving Sudoku to. At least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I think it's very important to mention this. In a way, that could also be, in a way, uh, a barrier to implementation of this kind of training. So, first of all, yeah, as you said, some people have read, I, I, I've actually not published yet this in full, because I'm also doing some additional study, etc., etc. It's a big thing, so I really want to get it kind of uh, solid and repeated and, you know, um, 
So it's, it's, I'm, I'm talking academic standards now. Um, but, you know, I, I, I presented it at conferences and has been in the press, et cetera, et cetera, already. Um, and, and as you say, some people that read these articles, they started to do it in, in the field, for example, do, as you said, mathematics while they're doing some mathematical calculation they read while they're running and something or whatever. Um, ah, by the way, we are actually, the, uh, um, it's, it's been quite a, a difficult process, more difficult than I thought, but anyway, try to develop like an app, for like an iPhone app with an American company uh, that basically will give you uh, some uh, auditory, you know, sounds, uh, stimuli, um, for your earphones, that, and then you have to respond to those. So you can do this kind of task that I do uh, while you're learning, for example. Um, but the important thing is, for example, if you do mathematics, it's mentally demanding, so it's going to induce some mental fatigue. However, doing mathematics is in itself doesn't really require that inhibitory control I was telling you about. So it's not as powerful as a, 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 a mental task that involves this inhibitory control. And this is the kind of task that I use uh, for the brain endurance training. Um, so also the Sudoku. A lot of people do Sudoku because they like it, right? Um, or video games in general, you know? If you like the cognitive task, even if it's demanding mentally, because some, some of these video games, I find them very, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a video game player at all, but the few times that, you know, they can be these days quite demanding. If you like it, it's not going to be very, it's not going to induce much mental fatigue either. So you need to, in order to really mentally fatigue yourself, and therefore, if you repeat this mental fatigue regularly, blah, 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 uh, um, develop some sort of resistance to mental fatigue, you need to do something that ideally that involves uh, inhibitory control, but also something that is boring to death and that you don't like. Because you also have to force yourself of doing it, and that's again that fires up those areas of the brain, hmm. blah blah blah, that that are related to inhibitory control, but also perception of effort, endurance performance, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Yeah, this this brings a um, interesting thought in my in my head. So you you are aware of the fasted training, so uh, training on you know low glycogen. Yes. Uh, and could the effect of such a training be? more mental than physiological in this case. Yeah, I mean, you will have the physiological effects. There are some nice studies showing the Definitely, yeah, yeah. mitochondrial adaptation, etc., etc. But you're right. Uh, doing... Um, so you can run in front of the athlete on, on a motorcycle and, and carry sneakers, sneaker bars, <laughs> and uh, yeah. tell them to restrain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, no, but in terms of the glycogen deprivation training, but also, like, for example, training at altitude, training in the heat, all these um, uh, kind of, let's call it, training in a less than ideal state, if you like, no? Uh, we, we know, for example, like altitude um, and uh, but definitely the glycogen, but also now there are some studies on uh, training in the heat. Actually, Considering especially that you, you tend to reduce the intensity, the absolute intensity of training, they, there are some now some, some, some suggestions that this kind of training may actually help not only obviously when you then compete at altitude or compete in the heat, because obviously that, that's immediately understandable why you want to train in those conditions uh, because you want to get used to them. But 
and your body and your mind as well to get used to them. But it seems to transfer, some of the effects seem to transfer, at, at, for example, sea level or in the, in the temperate conditions. Um, and so that may be, that transfer may be caused by some sort of uh, brain endurance training that you do when, for example, you go out and force yourself uh, running in the heat and it's sticking and hot and you really don't like it, you know, you like it even more than the usual endurance training, uh, but you force yourself um, doing it. So that you're doing brain endurance training without knowing it. Um, same thing, for example, again, from a practical, very practical point of view, I think it could be uh, interesting, especially but with professional players, you know, obviously it's a bit different because they, they, they just do sport. But for example, in terms of the double session, for example, you can, but, or amateur players. So to do a, on purpose, schedule some sessions when you're mentally fatigued because you have done something else before that could be a job if you have one if you're a professional could be i don't know uh, a very long tactical session or something like that um so that you is you i don't i think it could work not only when you do something when you overload the brain during the training i think also doing some training session a mentally fatigued state could have a training effect it's another form of brain endurance training, if you like, and that could be done quite easily. However, like, and and the same goes for altitude, uh, for the training in a glycogen depleted state or training in the heat. You need to consider that training in a less than optimal condition means that uh, it's it's going to be difficult to do a very high quality training session, and and you you still need them to induce adaptation in the muscle central nervous system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you need to be, as a coach, uh, careful that you, you know, because I can see, for example, some, some people say, okay, now we are going to do all our training session in a mentally fatigued state. No, no, no. I mean, you still need, you know, when, when the purpose of the training session is to increase insult to mental fatigue, you may want to do that. But when the training purpose is to do a high quality session to improve your, uh, I don't know, repeated sprint ability and stuff, you don't want to do in a mentally fatigued state maybe uh, because you, you, you will run slower, for example. So you want to, you know, just it's 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 another tool in the toolbox of a coach that needs to be sensibly used and 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 implemented within the overall training program. Yes, um, yes. like yes. any other training method, but it's a new training method in a way that nobody has really never really kind of done before, and it's uh, and also comes from sports science rather. Usually, the sports scientists study the physiological changes induced by training method the coaches have been used for kind of centuries right like the high intensity interval training i mean we the, the, as a science physiologist didn't invent it we, we studied it now a lot we know what happens we and because of that we are, we are now starting to tell even people that were not athletes maybe you should do that so there are some positive about doing that but we didn't invent i intensity interval training <laughs> but this brain endurance training is, is one of the few examples i guess that comes from from science to the field rather than the other way around so i think um, we need to do more work about it but i think it's uh, if i was a coach i would be quite interested because okay that's another tool as a coach that maybe i haven't really thought about i haven't really developed that i can now use um with the training of my athletes so uh, as i said there is more work there are some technical things and stuff that we need to develop etc etc but it's uh, i think it's quite exciting yeah you said it wonderfully i think i think it's more art than a science and just knowing wh when to overload in this case you know yes yes improve the resilience and knowing when to minimize the mental fatigue exactly so but isn't it isn't it that 
don't you do that? The, the thing is, it's, it, you do that with any with training. Yeah, this, exactly. That's training. I mean, you, you overload people during the, the week, for example, and on the, on the, on the Tuesday, let's say, or Wednesday or something. But then you don't, you don't do a hard training session the day before a football match. Yeah, exactly. So you want so, to minimize it. So it's, 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 it's nothing different from physical training. Uh, it's just uh, concentrating on the different mechanic, cognitive mechanism. and brain aspects of it. And, and, but with anything, you need to minimize it. When you need to minimize it, you need to overload it when, when it's good to overload it and, and control the, the load. And, the, and that's the, the art of coaching as well. Obviously, scientists can help. And I think we need to develop better ways of quantifying and understanding when the athlete is becoming uh, excessively mentally fatigued. And, and especially we need to avoid mental fatigue becoming chronic. And I think, um, and, and to do that, we need to monitor not just the physical training load, we need to monitor the mental training load, so the, the mental load of training, but also, co uh, contrary to physical, which are, physical training is going to, uh, or training on the field is going to load you mentally and physically, it, it, more it, or less, depending on. But once you once you get out of the field from a physical point of view, you're not you're not overloaded anymore. You rest. But mentally, what's going on outside the field? What's going on in the private life of of the athlete and other stressors? They contribute to the overall mental load. So as a coach, you should be aware. And, and good coaches already do it in a instinctive way. No, they ask, you know, how is it going? I don't know if they see the the. The the, the 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 face of the player when he comes into the training session and stuff you know they might feel there must be something going on maybe outside the field they ask they talk you know and they've done it forever but I, I what would be nice if we could make it a little bit more systematic so for example that we don't miss you know mm -hmm. some of these symptoms but also that we quantify them so then as a coach both as support staff uh, maybe try to control. Um, Minimize it or increase it, depending what's the best way to do it. But definitely have a, have a, a better quantification and control of the overall load, which for mental workload includes what's going on outside the field as well. But at this moment, there's no instrument doing that. Um, no, in a way, and yes. So the session RPE, what we know, for example, is that perception of effort uh, doing a doing a, an endurance task is sensitive to all these kinds of fatigue. So, if I cycle with fatigue muscles, my perception of effort is going to be higher. If I cycle with um, a mental, a mental a fatigue brain, be, be, because of different mechanisms, but I also feel, from a perception point of view, my uh, cycling feels harder as well. Okay. The good thing is that, for example, let's because I think those, those are the two main distinctions in terms of fatigue. When I cycle with fatigue locomotor muscle, I have an increase in perception of effort, which is very similar to the increase in perception of effort I have when I have a mentally fatigued brain. But when my muscles are fatigued, I also have an increase in heart rate. And that's due to the mechanism for this fatigue and also for the increase in perception of that. When I cycle with in, in a mentally fatigued state, my perception is higher and is the same as 
with the muscle fatigue, but my heart rate is not higher. So there is a mismatch, if you like, between, let's call it physiological intensity, let's say, and perception of effort. So if, and obviously this can be done only in, uh, well, obviously every day or very frequently only in kind of professional teams and or, or very uh, well-organized teams, not so much in kind of amateur level, but um, if you have a, 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 a physiological or maybe even a, a biomechanical, you know, anal much analysis of what they do on the field. Although I, I personally, I would like to have some, some physiological marker, like for example, uh, art rate. And then you have the session RP. Okay. When you see that the, so uh, i give you, for example, if RP goes up, the session RP is higher than normal, but heart rate is up. And also, uh, let's say the, the amount, the distance that they do in the training session is up. That's not fatigue, right? That's because you make them run more <laughs> and they feel that the session is harder. Okay. So, you know, not, not, nothing to worry about. You need to consider that because it's going to be part of the load, but it, it's not an index of, 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 of fatigue. If you uh, do, if you see a, a, an increase in session RP, and an increase in heart rate, but in terms of what they did uh, during the training, is the same thing that you did like the week before, but today they have higher heart rate and higher RP. Hmm? That means that they have a mu muscle fatigue. Or, or change in ambient temperature or heat. Yeah, yeah, no, yes. But let's yeah, say. But assuming, yeah, assuming that's. Assuming constant. that is. The, the condition of the training session are the same. Okay, yeah. Uh, and what they do in the training session is more or less the same. But you have higher heart rate and higher RPE. That would, be, that would be an index of, let's call it muscle fatigue or physical fatigue. So, for example, the, the kind of st if it's not something you, you want, uh, you need to do some sort of recovery. You need to take into account. But you see, already tells you that it's muscle fatigue. So you, you do things to recover from a muscular point of view. Um, if you see, if you have the same training session, Higher session RP, but heart rate is the same. You will know that that, that that session RP means mental fatigue, and therefore, what you do if you if your intention is to minimize that uh, is would be different. For yeah. example, I would either myself as a coach, or if I have a, a very extensive team, I'll ask a psychologist maybe to have a chat with a guy and find out. Um, if there is something going on, or, or it could be the mental fatigue induced by previous training sessions. You know, you may do training sessions which are not fatiguing from a muscular point of view. That's why you don't see the increase in heart rate, but maybe mentally, you know, you did, I don't know, tactical or whatever, mentally, or maybe you, you trained in the heat and the day before or something, I don't know. And, and so that was mentally fatiguing. You see in the, in the next day's training session, which I think is one of the very first things you asked me. Yeah. Um, uh, so you, you see, just by having... Uh, an idea of what you do in the training session, which a lot of coaches, I mean, uh, uh, obviously if you have video analysis, it's much better, but you know, more or less, you know what you do. Yeah, what, if you have, if you have a, 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 some sort of physiological uh, measure and the session RP, you can start really with very simple measurements um, to do a bit of a, uh, first of all, to find out whether they are fatigued or just, yeah, or, and also try to distinguish between physical and mental fatigue, which I think it's 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 it, well, obviously I think it's very important. Yeah. So it's not 
we can do better than this. But to be honest, based on my experience, I think if we apply this kind of system in a systematic way, I'm I'm not convinced that we're going to find something much better. Because, for example, you're overtraining, right? This, because there's been a lot of um, uh, research on overtraining, which I think for me is like the study of kind of chronic. For me, overtraining is mainly it's like a chronic mental fatigue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but they studied um, a lot of markers, you know, in the blood, like immune or muscle damage markers or whatever. They try to find something objective to measure, to if like diagnose um, whether you are overtrained or overreached, like they say. Um, and, and the only measures that work are subjective measure. And one of them is the ratio between heart rate and RP. So when RP is... Uh, higher than what you would expect from basically the exercising the physiological intensity of the training session, uh, that's one of the best measures of overtraining. So, you see, the, this system it, it can work both in identifying acute changes, but also chronic ones. Um, and uh, so I think, um, yeah, we can, already, we, we can already do it. Yeah, given the given the resources, of course. I mean that's uh, that's quite uh, interesting and also reassuring because at um, at Port Adelaide, what what we are doing um, based on on you know recommendations from um, our sports scientist Hugh Graham and uh, performance manager Darren Burgess, uh, we perform submaximal yo-yo test uh, once a week. Yes, and then we measure uh, we measure heart rate. We measure yeah. heart rate at the last minute. I think yeah. it's five minutes, and then recovery of the heart rate uh, in two minutes. But we also measure RP, uh, RP. and yeah. we use those. <laughs> we use those two to yeah. gain some of the insight. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and also we try to maintain the 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 warm up preceding. So the warm up is always the same. Yeah. Um, same movements. Uh, so we want to minimize the co- confounders. Yeah, of course. And also we do it indoor. Uh, on, on the same pitch, and yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the temperature might might vary a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's real life, but uh, we, we try to. But you can measure that easily, yeah. and, and like, if, it's, if a, it's very hot, uh, maybe you don't do the test; you do it another day or something. I mean, it's yeah, not a big deal. But actually, it's funny you said that because I was about to to say to suggest to do exactly that because some for some teams, either from a practical point of view or from an expense point of view, you cannot monitor heart rate. Every single training session, I have much video analysis, and you know what I mean. Yeah. So doing some sort of standardized physical test, like the yo-yo test, with outlet monitoring RPE, will give you. Obviously, it's not as good as having an idea of what's going on every day, but once a week, or even once every couple of weeks. I mean, if if you don't have, you know, it's it's it, it, at least in terms of preventing, for example, some sort of. Uh, chronic development of fatigue, which can be very bad, you know, to prevent overreaching or even overtraining. I mean, you would definitely be able to find out if somebody's getting overreached and therefore avoid him becoming overtrained. Uh, so I think doing that is, is absolutely a relatively easy thing to do um, um, and people should, should do it. Even if, of course, you don't see changes in the yo-yo test performance every week. But that's not the point. And if anything, you know what? If you want to make it even more <coughs> practical, and maybe that's, you didn't say, but maybe that's what you do. You don't need to go to the max. No, no, we do sub-maximum. So we do exactly. You do sub-maximum. You, you know, go up to a decent intensity, but doesn't have to be maximal. 
it can be some muscles. Also, the athletes, you know, they're happy. They don't, you know, they don't have to do a maximal effort and stuff like that. Yeah, also, time limit, you know, you and time limit. Yeah, exactly, we do it exactly. before session. So exactly, exactly, and um, yeah, that that that's exactly what I was going to suggest. So um, it's great that you guys are already doing it. I yeah, think it's, I remember uh, actually asking our sports scientist Stu Graham uh, why we're measuring RP, and he actually mentioned the the stuff you are mentioning, the the ratio between RP and heart rate. Uh, it's quite interesting. So if if heart rate stays the same and they are reporting higher RP, that's yeah. that might be something to inspect. Yeah, but yeah, it doesn't have to stay the same. Obviously, when you do this, it doesn't have to stay the same necessarily. It's it's the ratio. So it it, it could go up, and that could be due, especially if you, for for the same speed. Let's say if RP goes up, um, it will be a sign of maybe muscle fatigue. But then you could you can also have the free example I made earlier was like a be extreme. You can have a combination of fatigue sometimes. So let's say you, you are running at, let's say, a, a given speed, yeah? And your heart rate goes up from a week to another. That's a sign that there is some physical fatigue. And then you can have a proportional increase in, in RP, and that would mean that there is only physical fatigue, right? Because the increase in RP is proportional to the increase in, in, in heart rate. But if you see on the top of the increase in heart rate, you see an increase in RPE that you know that uh, there is also mental fatigue going on. Or, or you could have also, let's say, a reduction in heart rate because you're getting fitter, but you can have an increase in RPE or RPE stays the same. That, that would also be an index of mental fatigue. Yeah. You, need, it's, you really need to kind of calculate or, or just interpret you know, the data in terms of a ratio between heart rate and RPE. That's that's the the, that's, the key. Yeah, that's fantastic recommendation for coaches, and, and thank you for pointing on that one. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm afraid that the listeners are suffering from mental fatigue themselves. <laughs> so I would like to wrap this up. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm more than thankful for sharing such a tremendous amount of information. Uh, and I would like, as a last question, I would like to ask you for, um, you know, as always, where can interested listeners can find more about your work and uh, what do you suggest reading or following for interested strength conditioning coaches and sports scientists? Yeah, yeah. I think the easiest way to kind of keep, keep uh, in touch with me and see, you know, I, I post it, if I publish a paper, I post it there, etc., is to follow me on Twitter, which is at um, uh, Samuele Marcora, like my name, so it's easy to find me. Uh, also, for a more kind of academically, scientifically inclined, you can access m most of my papers for free uh, through my ResearchGate profile, um, which you can, uh, you know, if you are a sports scientist, or you can you can give uh, the, the email of your institution and you can have access, etc. Uh, but I think also every everybody can do that. Um, yes, yeah, so that would be the the the, the two main ways to. Um, yeah, keep in touch with what I do and uh, and uh, get uh, my opinion and my papers and uh, whatever and the fights with um, Ziggy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to post uh, to post the, the links on um, uh, episode description. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> so yeah, thanks thanks a lot, Samuel. This was a fantastic episode and really insightful. Um, I wish you all the best in a, in a future studies and bring us some more applied. Um, Insights. Yes, of course. And thank you for having me and for helping to translate my research to practitioner, which is an extremely important thing to do. So I'm very thankful to you. Okay, thanks a lot, Samuel. Bye bye.
Listen, listen.